Hi, I'm Gary T. McDonald, author of The Gospel of Thomas the Younger, and I'm delighted to be here today with uh, Peter Boland, who is an extremely talented singer-songwriter, but also a philosophy professor, a soon-to-be published author, and a wonderful blogger on non-religious spirituality. And I got to first hear about Peter from my friend Gloria Kamler, who's a fine meditation teacher here in Los Angeles. And she had seen him talking about the Gospel of Thomas, which is uh, a subject that I'm always interested in. For people that don't know, uh, the Gospel of Thomas was a set, uh, was among a set of scrolls found in Egypt in the uh, mid-40s, I think. And it revealed a list of sayings of Jesus that were probably compiled before the the Gospels that we know of in the in the New Testament were written. And uh, it got passed around and talked about quite a lot in, in the subsequent years. And uh, it shares part of the, the title of my book, The Gospel of Thomas the Younger, although my character in my book is the nephew of the Thomas that supposedly compiled this list of Jesus' sayings. But I'm, I'm really intrigued to hear uh, Peter's comments about the Gospel of Thomas and see how he relates them to my book um, and also hear just his thoughts in general. So uh, what do you think, Peter? What's your take on the Gospel of Thomas? Gary, thanks so much for having me on board today. I, I love your book. I'm really learning so much from it. You know, I come from the academic side. I'm a, I'm a teacher of philosophy and religious studies, and so my entrance – into the world of religious studies, comparative religion was broad, and it was the Eastern traditions that I was most attracted to personally. So when I stumbled on the Gospel of Thomas initially many, many years ago, I was sort of dumbfounded that here's this gospel that's not in the New Testament that presents this radically different portrait of the nature of Jesus and the work of Jesus, missing are all the traditional elements of mainstream Christianity. There's no virgin birth. There's no death and resurrection. He doesn't save anybody. He doesn't heal anybody. He's just this kind of crusty wisdom teacher. It's sort of like Lao Tzu and the Tao Te Ching. You're right. It's just a list of wisdom sayings with no narrative. So then it's a rich experience to come to your book, The Gospel of Thomas the Younger, really in the best tradition of historical fiction, uh, you know, this beautiful research, really grounded in, in authentic understanding of who all those people are, but then bringing that perspective to life, that sort of alternative Jesus. I thought it was fantastic. Well, thank you. Um, I'm interested in how you moved or how your your journey began and how it progressed from being this wonderful singer-songwriter <laughs> into this uh, spirituality teacher. You know, Gary, I... <laughs> I, I don't know where the lines are anymore. I, I can't tell the difference between work and play. I can't tell the difference between one gig and the next. I'm always on stage or in front of people trying to create an experience, trying to lead people into something rich and real and deep and exciting and seditious. And whether I'm in my community college philosophy class or I'm on on the lecture circuit around here, or I'm leading a guided meditation, or I'm in a recording studio making the next album, or I'm on stage with my guitar. To me, it's all the same. Um, so I don't know how to answer that. It seems like they've always been different parts of one thing for me. 
and and as a result i don't get to specialize and and I missed out on some opportunities because of that. You know, I'm 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 spread too thin. But I kind of like the way that it's all worked out, and and uh, all the songs that I write, and that mysterious moment on stage. It's always about what the characters in your book call um, the realm of God, the that that real place where the boundaries become diaphanous and we begin to see and know each other more authentically that happens in a good song that happens in scripture that happens in poetry it happens all over the place if you become awake and aware to it well yes and it's really clear that you're um you're heading toward um uh, the eastern side of things motivates you to try to do things that will actually help people. And I, I feel like uh, that, that you've really followed the Buddhist path in, in that sense, that, that really you're motivated by trying to, to help people reduce their suffering in life by seeing a greater vision of what life can be. And I just wanted to uh, – we talked about this a little yesterday when we were speaking um, – there is this huge dichotomy for people like us that are motivated that way to produce works that try to help people reduce their suffering and having to promote those very works <laughs> so that people can then have access to that that uh, that helping hand. And right, right. <laughs> can, yeah. Can you speak hey, about that a little? Sure. You know, like, hey, look at me. It's not exactly in the Bhagavad Gita, right? Or... <laughs> Uh, Buddha doesn't really give us a lot of support on how to build our Twitter feed. So, you know, this is, this is, this is the strange paradox built into any life in the arts or in, in teaching of the introverted, humble, deeply introspective, inward looking work. I guess that's redundant. Um, is, is a very personal, private, isolated thing. But if you're going to make a film, if you're going to be a singer-songwriter, if you're going to be a lecturer or publish a book, you need a wide audience. And and I, I always go back to that, that old cliche that a teacher teaches m- most what they need to learn. And it's always that sense of service. I, I just get that out of the Bhagavad Gita, that that all work is service. And it's all dharma. It's all the fulfillment of our purpose. So when you show up as a novelist or as a filmmaker, when I show up as a teacher or a singer-songwriter, I I honestly leave myself outside of the process as best I can, and I try to, and this is a horribly overused word, I try to just channel, <laughs> you know, um, what has helped me heal and what has connected me to the real into the room and in, in something I'm writing or whatever. And so it, it, it ultimately isn't about me at all, but the fact remains that when I get up in the morning, I do need to put a couple hours in to the marketing process. I need to build some Facebook e- event pages. I need to work on my website. Oh, I got to schedule and get some new headshots, blah, blah, blah. And, and, and nothing feels so antithetical <laughs> to what you're really about, right? I mean, you yeah. just, don't, don't you just detest this? I know, I know you say it's part of the process. But it must feel so – it does to me. I just simply hate promoting myself in any kind of way. And I just 
when I was writing the book, I, I, I was really arguing with myself about whether to write it anonymously and put it out there anonymously. But then realizing <laughs> that, that I was going to have to promote the thing, right. that I would be put in the position of always having to lie. I, I would be deceptive right. all the time right. when people said, who write this? And I, you know, I just couldn't stand to be in that position either. Oh, and so I, would kill, I, would, I would kill to have your resume, right? It's a great lead-in to publishing a book it's like here's the here's here's this guy that a bunch of people know who he is does all this quality work in a related field as a writer though and and as a creator it's how could you let that go so i feel that that struggle but you know what gary i i just got to a place where it's i enter into it with a sense of play that i i stopped hating it and Saying that you don't want to do it is like saying you want a crop of tomatoes, but you don't want to work in the garden. <laughs> and 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 you've got to get in the dirt, and you've got to sweat in the sun, and it's stuff you don't like to do, but it helps you build. And I just think of it as clearing the channel through which Brahman can flow. You know, that's that's my mm. work. I'm not the source of it all, but I do tend to the stream. You know, there's a great line in the Gospel of Thomas where Jesus says to the disciples, I am not your teacher. Um, you have become intoxicated from a stream that I have tended. And I think of that line often that each of us is tending the stream. We're not the source of the water, but we do have to make the channel bigger so that more can flow through it. And that's how I enter into my marketing work. Yeah, well, you, you've got a better attitude toward it than I do. <laughs> of course, I, I don't know. I do face a certain amount of skepticism because the market I, I'm trying to reach, the people that I'm really trying to reach are the people that are suffering as a result of their the religious experience that they've had. Right. This is the ex-evangelical uh, ex community or the yeah. former fundamentalist community. And some they are so – and deservedly so, so skeptical about anyone that comes at them with anything to offer. Oh, yeah. That, uh, you, you often get, uh, you know, I get criticized for, for uh, trying to promote the book and trying to get the people to read the book, even though I really genuinely believe that it's helped some of them, the, the ones yeah. that report back saying that they've really – it's really freed them from some guilt and some anger and some frustration with uh, all they've been through with uh, the more traditional Christianity, which, which you know, I, I can't buy into. And I know you can't either. Neither one of us are Christians, really. Right. And, and you took a risk putting the word gospel right at the top of your title. You know, there's a bunch of people that are going to just scan right on by that. And it's a shame because it is such – an important message, and luckily you're not the only one sharing this message. I feel like there's a real shift in the zeitgeist around the nature of Jesus. There's been a slew of books the last 20 years. I'm thinking of Deepak Chopra's The Third Jesus or Bishop John Shelby Spong, uh, Why Christianity Must Change or Die, or his other great book, um, Rescuing the Bible from, fun fun from Fundamentalism. And Spong has this great phrase. He calls it Christians in Exile. And that's mm -hmm. who he's reaching out to, people that no longer believe that, that you know, the Jesus of the Gospel of John, that, that he is the only divine being, and that he died on the cross, and you're a hopeless sinner, and unless you accept the salvation of Christ, you're forever cut off from God. 
And mm-hmm. you you really do a great job in the novel, The Gospel of Thomas the Younger, in in fleshing out that contrast between those two portraits of Jesus and your your protagonist, you know, the nephew of the Gospel of Tom, uh, excuse me, the son, I guess, of, of the disciple Thomas, the nephew of Jesus and James, is right inside of all of this. And, and he um, represents that more open-ended Jesus, whereas I love how you bring in the character of Paul as kind of the villain of the piece whose own demons drive him toward a reinterpretation of Jesus as this sort of magical unicorn who's going to save the world from our wretched, hopeless sin. And it's Paul's own self-loathing that drives him to that perspective. It doesn't seem to be in the teachings of Jesus or any of the other disciples. It's a fascinating Con- contrast that's at the heart of your book. Well, thank you. That's uh, kind. Of, that's exactly what I intended. But as you say, putting putting gospel in the title does put people <laughs> off. I, and I, I really meant meant it as the to- a total takedown of fundamentalist Christianity from the beginning. But um, there's somehow, your subtitle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well. No, uh, I'm just kidding. Well, I uh, <laughs> the total the takedown of fundamentalist. Yeah, no, that's a little too hot. Well, you know, <laughs> the the subtitle as it is is the gospel is novel as gospel, gospel is novel. You yes. know, which Perfect. is um, I don't know how many people actually focus on that, but I guess they do. Like you say, associate the word gospel with something religious, where what I'm doing is so blasphemous and, <laughs> and irreligious, right? Um, and attended that way. Well, I I guess I face the same barriers in my own work. You know, when I when I uh, when I call my meditation group a satsang, then all the neo vedantists come, and when I call it a sangha, then all the Buddhists come, but the neo vedantists stay away, and the Christians stay mm-hmm. away, and 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 so everybody has their sort of preconceptions and barriers and walls. I don't know. There's not much we can do about that sitting at our little desk creating our work, but um, bit by bit we chip away at it, and open-minded people, the right people, will uh, come to it. I think most uh, people even remotely interested in the Christian world have some sense of what the Gospel of Thomas is, Um, and so it already has this sort of delightfully – seditious reputation you know it's 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 non-traditional it's outsider stuff and so your title pulls all of that cool into it as well well we can only hope listen <laughs> i wanted to ask you a little bit about your book um mm. do you, what's your title I don't, I don't even know the title of your right it, it's it's called the seven stone path and everyday journey to wisdom and so it's a non-fiction non-academic um, I suppose it'll be shelved, probably the self-help stuff or spirituality, but it's a book about uh, my favorite ideas from the world's wisdom traditions, and fundamentally the question: What is wisdom, and why do we need it? And and um, that's what the book is about, and it's it's arranged around these seven key ideas, and it's it's all done, and it's been revised a number of times, and now I'm in the in the uh, getting some permissions from some quotes and doing some formatting work, and then it goes into final editing. So hopefully out earlier next year. I'm optimistic. <laughs> well, I hope so, and I'm eager to read it and review it. Thank you. Um, it's interesting that I think about this all the time, how 
little used the word wisdom is in this culture today. It's like when when I was growing up yeah. or when I was a kid, it was a word that was used, you know, fairly often. But now, I, I don't know, it's almost like the whole sort of knowledge and technology uh, paradigm has taken over and replaced this, you know, forever sense of uh, wisdom being the thing that really we ought to be striving for, that we ought to be, uh, you know, uh, acquiring over time, and that ought to be uh, we used to govern us. And uh, it, it just seems so incredible that it could be, the concept could be so lost in a culture. I agree. And that's one of the reasons I decided to write this book. And you know, the word wisdom is tucked into the word philosophy, philosophia, this idea of the love of wisdom. So out of the Greek tradition, you know, Athens, 4th century BC, comes this idea, this word, that it is an innate human quality to long for for wisdom. And you're right, wisdom is different than knowledge. Um, and that's one of the things I, I kind of have to sort through at the beginning of the book, that knowledge is... is overlapping with wisdom, but wisdom seems to be um, the art of living well, the ability of being whole and healed. And I think today uh, we call it mental health. Um, we live in the age of psychology. All of our problems are defined as as psychological problems or maladies. And psychology is only 100 years old in the West. And I think for hundreds of thousands of years, human beings suffering from melancholy or depression or anxiety or other psychological disorders, they frame them as spiritual problems. They frame them as, you know, how do I become woven back into the fabric of the family of things and the community of loved ones around me? How do I have peace within? And those are those are the same questions we go to our gurus and we meditate and we pray about. And so the lines between religion and philosophy and psychology and, and are are kind of porous. And mm-hmm. I think wisdom is out of style because it's 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 such an undefinable thing. There was something in in the last two centuries where acquisition of material things became so much more important. And in, in, when that became the, the measure of a man, how much he acquired, it, it, wisdom got shining aside. I mean, it, it's not like that was a material thing, so right. we needn't bother with it. But uh, mm-hmm. I think we're really starting to see where that uh, train ends up. You know? <laughs> I mean, we're, yeah. we're, we're hitting the wall with um, – a world of based on knowledge and technology and without uh, all of those really prime important things that, that that we used to call wisdom yeah and anything we can do to sort of shine a light on it you know it didn't disappear it just went underground and when you think about all the people that you know in your family and friends and circle you you kind of know who the wiser ones are and who the more foolish ones are. It's without putting too fine a point on it. There's this sense of grace and ease and kindness and generosity of spirit and and cheer and cheerfulness. I mean, you can kind of make a bullet point list of qualities of the wise person, even though you can't define well what is wisdom exactly. And, and I, I I sort of think that wisdom is, in a way, content free. 
It isn't the right ideology. It isn't harboring the right theories. It isn't knowing the answer to everything. It's, it's simply knowing how to move through the fluid field of life around us. Uh, my, one of my favorite wisdom books is the Tao Te Ching and, and the whole Taoist perspective. And I see a lot of that kind of wisdom in the Jesus sayings in the Gospel of Thomas. And uh, so th- those are some of the cross-tradition um, cross connections that really excited me as a student and that I'm still swimming in as a teacher. Mm-hmm. Well, you do a great job in your blogs about, uh, you know, sort of illustrating and explicating those those different uh, streams of wisdom. And uh, Thank you. I think anybody, uh, we should mention that your blogs can be found at your website, uh, peterbolland.com. And uh, I think it, it really repays the effort, you know, to read your blogs and, and uh, think about what you have to say about it. And like I say, I look forward to your book very much. Yeah. Let me, let me ask you a quick question here. How did you um, make this journey yourself from being someone who, according to the dust jacket on your book, sort of identifies more with the Buddhist side? How, how, how did you find yourself investing an enormous amount of time and effort and work into becoming a scholar of early Christianity? Well, it's actually sort of back asswards because yeah. I was raised in a very, very uh, fundamentalist Christian family in the Bible Belt. And when I w- reached my mid-teens, I was starting to become skeptical of that and um, just started uh, looking into reading the translations I could find of various Buddhist writings. And for many years, I... After I rejected Christianity, I uh, called myself a Buddhist. But in your youth, it's when your hormones are raging, it's very, very difficult to practice Buddhism. <laughs> and so I didn't really become a practicing Buddhist until decades later, after I'd sort of been through the Hollywood meat grinder and come out on the other side <laughs> and decided I really need to, needed to find some real wisdom in my in myself or find some wisdom for myself. Yeah. And that's when I started practicing Buddhism. And about five years into that practice, I began to remember some of those um, Gospel of Thomas kinds of Jesus sayings that are in the Gospels and thinking, uh, rethinking all of uh, what I thought about Christianity. And that's when I... Uh, uh, decided to try to attempt this. Now, I had read so much of the Bible as a young person that I kind of remembered quite a lot of that. Sure. But and and in the in the meantime, struggling with the guilt of leaving Christianity behind and all the anxiety that that produces, I had yeah. read people like uh, John Shelby Spong and Elaine Pagels and uh, Karen Armstrong and. Um, one of my favorites, I don't know if you've ever encountered this guy, Chaim Maccabee, who wrote uh, oh. um, The Mythmaker, uh, Paul and the Invention of Christianity, which is wow. a book that was a, a major influence on my thinking. And uh, so I gathered up all this material in my brain, and then it just all poured out in this, <laughs> this gospel. Well, it's a, it's a remarkable achievement to to take the real and documented movements and events and and all of this information in in your novel and and 
spin a beautiful narrative around it with this uh, delightful character as we follow him through all of his entrance and exit from all of these different circles. It's, uh, it's illuminating. It was really, really something. Well done. Yeah. You know, uh, people, um, the, the figure of Josephus, who's really, really important in my book, yeah. is, is someone that's kind of lost to history, I think. He was like one of the great historians of all time uh, in writing about the first century. And um, I, it was amazing how so many of these people were actually interacting with each other. The, the philosopher yeah. Epictetus and Josephus and... and um, Nero and uh, it's, it's almost like a Woody Allen film where it, people are yes, coming in one little. door and out the other. <laughs> it's it's an it's an amazing uh, thing to find in history. Well, listen, and, uh, I, I I'm a huge fan of Epictetus and Stoicism. I've written a lot about him, and I and I've lectured and taught a lot about him specifically in Marcus Aurelius. And I did not know a lot of these connections that you. Uh, shined a light on for me in this book so it was really interesting to see him uh in those orbits you know in that first century world it was just uh i mean you're right that it's all happening at the same time and it's not that big of a world and so people are going to brush up against each other it's in uh, really rich and cross-pollinating ways is is awesome uh well, uh, like I say, I look forward to uh, reading your book. And one more time, the title is? The title is The Seven Stone Path, An Everyday Journey to Wisdom. Yeah, yeah. hopefully next year, uh, in the next uh, spring, I'm hoping. Great, great. Well, I think that that probably wraps us up for the day, okay. don't you think? Sure. Okay. Uh, it was a joy to talk to you, Peter, and, and I hope that we can uh, talk again soon. And um, if you're ever up north here, come in and uh, let's get together. And Absolutely, if I'm ever down in San Diego, San Diego let's, let's do that. Great, great. Thank you again so much for inviting me on and l- letting me share for a little bit about uh, your important book. I think it's really brilliant. So well done again. Thank you. And uh, Thank you. we'll see you all later.